Thanks, Justin. So good to see everybody tonight. And uh, we are going to get right into part nine, the life of Moses, discovering God's hand and heart. We want to talk tonight about the topic of burnout. Now, I know, I know nobody here has ever had a problem with that, but you probably know someone that has so this is for them. You can tell them that pastor was talking about you on Wednesday. Um, we, um, now, Moses is an incredible life to try to get in th uh, 12 lessons. We have three left. We're going to talk about um, dealing with frustrations and disappointments. Um, what was behind Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to it? We're going to talk about um, the last days of Moses uh, in, in number 11. And then number 12, we'll talk about his legacy and how our lives can be enriched. But tonight, as I said, we want to talk about burnout and we want to study from Exodus chapter 18. So let's read together. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah and his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. Now remember they had gone into Egypt with, uh, um, with Moses, but uh, at, at a point where it was probably wise to do so, he sent them back. Uh, to take them kind of out of the line of fire. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. And by the way, uh, there's a phrase. There's a lot of phrases that we kind of, we either put the wrong importance on them or, or we don't understand the value of them. Um, and whenever we see in scripture, uh, and there's, this is almost true of, of every passage where we see this, not every, but almost every, when someone says, now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods, that's not, and it might be in a couple of places, but that's not them saying, well, I had doubts before but now I know. Um, it's, it's a way of saying that just goes to show you, or I, this confirms what I've always known. It's not a, it's not a backhanded compliment. 
you know. Um, uh, well, I had doubts before, but now I know. I mean, it, there are places where it does clearly mean that, especially when it's coming from the heart of a pagan. But when it's coming from someone like Jethro, um, it's, it's, a, it's a testimony to, you know, what I always said about the Lord was true. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Uh, someone had asked me the last time I preached from this passage, they said, how did Moses know to bring a burnt sacrifice? The law of Moses uh, it, it had not been given yet. They didn't know all of the commands about sacrificing. And so what you've got to understand in the, the books of Moses, the Torah, um, God systematized acts of worship that were already in place. Uh, the tithe was already in place. The, the idea of, of um, sacrifice was already in place. You remember when uh, um, Adam and Eve transgressed, it was God that actually explained to them the significance of their sin by cl making clothes for them from the skin of an animal and that necessitated death. And from the very beginning, they understood without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So the idea of a sacrifice was not something that was new because they had done that at Passover. They were very familiar with it, but the law of Moses codified all of this for Israel as a nation. So hopefully that is an answer that'll help explain that. So they ate this meal in the presence of God. Verse 13, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, why is, uh, or excuse me, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. 
officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. Father, help us tonight to, uh, to hear from you. We've already prayed. We know that you're here and we know that you hear, but we ask you to help us to hear now. Help us to understand because this, this passage is usually reserved for pastor or preaching to pastors. But there's a principle here in life that every one of us need to understand. And every one of us may stand in need of tonight, especially during these difficult times. So we ask for your help and we ask for your grace and we ask for your anointing both to speak and to hear. And uh, then we ask for your anointing to put into practice what we need to put into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to talk tonight about um, the perspective. Um, what, what is this thing called burnout? I want to talk about the problem of being driven. And then I want to talk about the principle that governs all of our lives. Let's talk about the perspective first of all. Now, I need to do a disclaimer up front. Um, I don't know if I've ever preached on this passage apart from two things. Number one is when I was like at a pastor's school or something, ministerial school, I would preach to pastors. This is what you must understand for your church to grow, avoiding burnout and delegation. I've also preached from this passage um, several times when I talk about the value of small groups. And you remember the way small groups have operated here is um, we said that it, that it helps the purpose. Uh, the, the two great examples of delegation uh, are the, the seven who were chosen to distribute food to the widows in Acts, uh, what is that, chapter six, and Moses delegating the judgment of Israel to those that were under him. Those are the two great examples. And three things happened in all three, in, in both of those cases. Um, the, 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 the final thing is that it helped the purpose. The people of God were served and the church, the church plateaued in Acts. And then when they solved the problem, it went on to grow. The second thing it did is that it helped the pastor. Uh, in the book of Acts, they said it's not fit for us to wait on tables. And I tried using that on Ramona a couple of times. She, did, she pointed out that I had taken it out of its context. But um, they, when they said it's not fit for us to wait on tables, they weren't saying we're too good to do that. They were saying it's not what we are called to do and we need to give ourselves to prayer and the word. And that takes a lot of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Self-confidence in your calling to tell somebody, I'm not going to do that because that's not what I'm called to do. That, that really shows some self-confidence and, and, and assurance if you can do that because it's, it sounds very self-serving. Well, I'd like to help you with the tables, but that's not my job. It, it, it sounds horrible. But it says that the disciples were able to devote themselves to the word and prayer. And one of the things that, that happened, that was one of the things that happened that caused the people excuse me, the purpose to be met, the church continued to grow. 
But the first thing that happened in each case um, is that the people were helped. Jethro pointed out, he said, you're not just wearing yourself out, you're wearing these people out. You know, uh, it's not just people that serve that get worn out. Sometimes it's exhausting to get served. Uh, you see, I went to vote today and I waited two hours and 11 minutes. I, I, got, I got worn out waiting to be served, you know. And they did a wonderful job. I tell you, we, we need to, whenever you do vote, if you haven't already, when you vote, compliment the poll workers and because they, they, are, they are putting in some long hours right now. And, uh, and I, I thank them for their excellent, excellent job. But, um, but the people were helped. Now, so I've, I've preached from this passage to pastors and I've preached on it to, to show why we believe in small groups because it helps the people, it helps the pastor and it helps the purpose. It, it, the, the church grows. But what I, if I've preached on this passage at any other time, I don't remember it. Um, but what I do want to do tonight is to help us understand the principles, whether you're pastor or, or, you know, physician or lawyer or secretary or teacher, whatever you are, the principle of burnout is the same. And, and you can be burned out. We don't ever want to make the mistake of saying, well, this profession works harder than that profession. Every profession and every calling has its unique demands. And one may be demanding physically, but not be demanding emotionally. Another may be demanding emotionally, but not be demanding physically. Um, one may be very demanding intellectually, but you know, the hours may be short. Every profession has its pros and cons. And that's why every one of us um, uh, needs to understand that we all need to be careful of burnout. Now, the danger of burnout, I, I want to say this first about Christian workers. And I'm not just talking about vo vocational Christian workers like paid pastors. It could be true of a Sunday school teacher or a ranger commander or an impact girl sponsor or any ministry leader or even you don't have to be a ministry leader. Sometimes it's just doing the ministry. The danger of burnout in Christian work is, is very high, whether it's as a volunteer or vocationally. Maybe, maybe the reason there's such burnout in churches is because there's a heavier sense of obligation than in most other fields. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that ministry is more noble. I'm saying that with the sense of a, a call to a task comes a, a pretty heavy sense of obligation. I remember when I was ordained, um, 23 years old, and my pastor handed me my Bible when the superintendent said, now I charge you before these witnesses and in the name of Jesus and in the presence of God, preach the word. And my pastor handed me that Bible. Um, I, I felt so humbled. But then when somebody else prayed, not my pastor, they said, and Lord, remind these men and women that if they ever fail in their task, the wrath of God awaits them. And if they ever back off, the judgment of God will be sure and swift in their lives. And um, he stopped just short of telling us if we ever left the ministry, we're going to hell. And um, 
it was a horrible prayer from a good man, but a horrible prayer. But I remember I walked away from that ordination with mixed feelings, so honored to have my pastor lay hands on me and hand me the word and, and say, preach the word. So, so um, humbled and honored that I was now an ordained minister. But also in the back of my mind was, you're in this for life, uh, which was not bad. I intend to be in it for life. But being in something for life kind of loses its luster when the threat of, of judgment is hanging over you, you know. Now, there are some vows that we make for life, and we make some pretty strong. I mean, that marriage is a serious thing. You, you have all the pretty dresses, and you have all the pretty decorations. But when all is said and done, you march down to the front of the church, and in front of 200 witnesses, you swear to God that you will never leave this man or this woman um, no matter what happens. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty serious moment. Well, whenever, uh, and, I, and I do, I think you understand, I'm trying to be funny, but from your response, it didn't work. But um, uh, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that in church work, um, whether it's vocationally or as a volunteer, there's a sense of obligation that is good, but it, if we let it get out of control, it can be devastating. I remember when I was in seminary and um, I worked at Sears and I, I wanted a TV. I, it, was the, it was the only luxury in life I could afford. I wanted a TV, I wanted a little TV. It was a 13 inch TV. Um, now you think about how inexpensive TVs are. That little 13-inch TV in 1978 was $350. That was a lot of money. And, um, uh, and that was with my employee discount. And um, I didn't have that much money, so I talked to him about a credit card. I said, uh, well, how, how does a credit, how, um, how much would the payments be? And he told me of something like 11 or $12. I don't remember what it was. I thought, well, I can afford that. And I said, how long? And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, the rest of your life. <laughs> and I thought, what? it couldn't be. How many months? He said, well, on paper, it's this many months, but I'm telling you, it's the rest of your life. And he wasn't far wrong. And, and every once in a while when I tuned in Starsky and Hutch or Columbo, I started thinking, I hope this thing works because I'm going to be paying for it the rest of my life. So there's a sense of obligation in the work of the Lord. Maybe there's unspoken pressure of not doing enough for the Lord or a fear of not loving him as deeply as we ought to. Now, that's the perspective. I'm talking primarily to those who are serving the Lord. I'm talking to you, whether you're a teacher or a volunteer, an usher, or you work in the cafe, or what, a greeter, whatever your ministry is, a pastor. There's a danger of burnout, and I think it's very high in the ministry because um, of several factors. But I think probably any kind of religious service, there's a sense of this isn't just... This isn't coaching little league. This, this isn't 
this isn't volunteering for neighborhood watch one night a month. This is, this is big and I don't want to let the Lord down. I don't want to fail him. And those are good things to remember. But again, he is not a hard man. Now he, he is, he has demands uh, and he doesn't tell us that we don't need to work, but he introduced a new concept to us. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now I could understand that if he had stopped right there, but he went on and said, I will give you rest. So take my yoke upon you. That does not make sense. Take my yoke upon you. That's like somebody saying, come on in out of the shade and rest your bones. Here's your shovel, you know, but the difference, what Jesus was saying, he said, life is tough. There's always going to be struggles. And I'm not telling you that you shouldn't serve and fulfill your role. But he said this, doing it under my yoke is different than doing it under your yoke or the world's yoke. So that, that, that understanding now imbalance or or excuse me, um, burnout can also happen if you're a school teacher, whatever you do. I mean, if you're a stay at home mom, I mean, whatever it is. Whatever it is, you need to be aware that there are principles of um, balance you need to incorporate in your life so you don't have burnout. Now, here's the problem. Um, If you don't keep an eye out for burnout, this is Roman numeral two on your notes, um, drivenness can lead you to imbalance. Um, Some of us have a personality that makes burnout more likely than with others. Some of us have a personality that lends to something else other than burnout. Some of us, uh, well, all of us have something about our personality. None of us are perfectly balanced. None of us are perfectly balanced. And, and we all have our hot buttons. We all have our, our weak spots. But here's the thing about if you don't learn to have a balance of life. And by the way, this isn't in your notes, but the balance of life is, is it's something a man taught me when I was in my twenties. And I've, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to get a grip on this and sometimes better than at others. But the, the, the balance of life, um, he wrote a book called the rhythm of life is a balance between work and play, uh, work and rest and worship and play. He says four areas of your life, work and rest and worship and play. You have to balance those four things out. And if you can balance those four things, you'll live longer and be happier. And um, there are days I've done it, uh, you know, maybe a couple of weeks at a time, but it's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to do. But here's the thing you see in your notes, drivenness leads to imbalance and imbalance leads to exhaustion. Exhaustion leads to irritation. Irritation leads to confusion. Confusion leads to criticism. Criticism leads to blurred vision. And I'm not talking about physically. You don't see things right when you're critical. And blurred vision leads to loss on many levels. That's what Chuck Swindoll said in in his book on Moses. Um, I think balance is, is the toughest thing to achieve, 
but it is the most essential thing that we need to achieve. Uh, need to achieve. I think the uh, one of the things that this year, 2020, has done is it's, uh, it's, it's shown flaws in our society and it's shown flaws in a lot of systems. We know that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But it's also showed a lot of flaws in us. And um, I think the main effect on people in general in 2020 is that if we have any tendencies to imbalance, it tends to show up. Um, the question, I think, for churches not just people, but I think for churches, when all begins to settle down, which is no sign of it settling down yet, but when it all settles down, the question is going to be, where did we settle on, on the balance of life? Um, and I think this is very critical. And, and I know people get upset when I say things like this, but um, we, we've got to understand that we... We are, we are like King David at En Gedi when the man that had done him wrong, the man who represented every system that had mistreated him, was lying before him helpless and his soldiers and his commanders told him, the Lord has delivered him into your hand, kill him. And you remember one time he stole, it happened twice. One time he stole Saul's water jug. Then one time he cut a, him off of his robe. Once um, he was asleep, once he had gone into a, a cave to relieve himself, uh, King Saul had. But David, David, to his credit, he came to the point where he says, this looks like God has brought him in my hand. But what I must do is let God deal with this. And that's a hard thing for us to learn right now because there are so many offenses on so many levels that are legitimate offenses. And, and you may say, well, so-and-so, they, they don't share my offense. They've got their own offenses. There are plenty of problems to go around. And one of the things that a church right now that's going to serve the Lord in the days ahead and be effective has got to learn, do we take matters into our own hands or do we surrender our right to stab and let God handle it? Now, I know I said that to somebody the other day. They said, well, God hadn't handled it so far. And I said, you're still alive, aren't you? Church doors are still open, aren't they? I said, God's taking care of us. I said, uh, what God is looking for is a church that can come through this and love society and love their enemies and be a place truly that's a place of prayer for all nations. And, and that's not what churches are looking for. Most churches are either settling on the left or most churches are settling on the right. And now don't get me wrong. I think I think it's fine to, if, if whatever your political view is, you settled that before God, that's between you and God. When you go into that voting booth, it's nobody's business but your own. But you do need to understand that you have to answer toward God. And what the church that is going to be used in the future has got to do is say, we're going to be a prayer of all nations. Not that we accept every view, not that we accept every policy, but we do our best to say, this is in the Lord's hands. Now, I know people get mad when I say, I'm not trying to elicit rage. I, I don't need any confrontation. I've had enough for a, for a lifetime. 
but with, like David, we've got to say, am I going to deal with this or am I going to let the Lord deal with this? And that is the most difficult thing that will come out of 2020. You say, oh, no, I want the Lord to handle it. <laughs> no, no. You know, you know what we do? We are, we are world class at doing this, especially I'd say we are talking about the preachers. I spoke to some preachers and I said this. We're the world's best at saying Elijah wanted to hear God, but God was not in the earthquake and God was not in the wind and God was not in the fire. God was in the still small voice and we preach that with passion. And then as soon as we preach that, we go back to listening to the wind and the earthquake and the fire. The other example is, um, is found at the, uh, Jacob's well with the woman of Samaria. <coughs> Jesus, that, that was specific. David was about personal wrongs. Um, the woman at the well had issues of national wrongs. She, um, the, the Samaritans, are you guys still with me? Okay. Okay. The Samaritans had been brought in by the Assyrians um, when uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken captive. The, the, pol the policy of the Babylonians was to, to take people of noteworthy abilities with you, take them out of the land. The Assyrians' policy was to um, generally to dilute the population by saying, um, uh, for, for instance, if South Carolina had been invaded by um, Assyria, what they would have, what they, what Babylon would have done would have gone to our universities and take the best and brightest to, to wherever that land was. But what Assyria did is they took what they wanted and then they brought people from other lands and put them, you know, they'd say, we're going to get everybody from Wyoming and Nebraska and bring them to South Carolina. Now what's wrong with people in Wyoming and Nebraska? Absolutely nothing, nothing at all wrong. But it's, it's a different culture. It's a different mindset. So they would say, whereas South Carolina might, if we left them along, alone, they would rise up in rebellion against us. We will dilute what South Carolina is so that they are this, that, and the other. And that's what the Assyrians did. So they brought in the Samaritans and the Samaritans naturally would marry with the people of the land. So what you had by the time of Jesus, you had two cultural groups. Racially, they were the same, but culturally they were different and they absolutely hated each other. The Samaritans were considered half Jews and that's kind of what they were. Not, not biologically, not racially, but culturally. They took part of the Old Testament and they embraced it and they worshiped God. But to the Jewish mind, if you didn't embrace it all, you weren't a Jew. You understand what I'm saying? So you had these people that had absolutely unsolvable problems. And she said to Jesus, she said, you Jews say worship ought to take place in Jerusalem. We say it ought to take place here. And the amazing thing about Jesus, and nobody wants to, to pay attention to this, Jesus didn't say, well, the Jews are right. Uh, he didn't say the Samaritans are right. Jesus said there's a higher law that's coming into effect. And it's those that worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it doesn't matter if it's in Jerusalem 
or if it's in Samaria. That's not the point. The mountain that you worship on is not the point. The point is that you worship God in spirit. When I was in Jerusalem, I, people explained to me that, you know, you put your prayer requests there in the, the, between the blocks of the wailing wall. And they said, this is a special place of prayer because every prayer that's ever prayed in the world comes in the spirit first to, the, to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, and then to God. And they said, this prayer is a shortcut because you're already the Temple Mount and you get to jump on all these other people. And, and, you know, that didn't offend me. I mean, I put my prayer requests in. I was honored to do it. But I know that it doesn't matter if I make a request in Jerusalem or Red Bank. It doesn't matter. Okay. So Jesus got right to the point. He said, we can spend all of our time arguing over whether we ought to pray at uh, um, the, the Temple Mount or if we ought to pray at, at, uh, in, some, in Samaria. But he said, that's not the issue. The issue is that something higher has to happen. A new law has to happen. And that's, the church has got to understand two things. I'm talking about a church that's going to go forward. They've got to understand that we need to do everything we can at the ballot box and everywhere else to right wrongs. We, we need to do everything we can to right wrongs. But at the end of the day, anger and rage will only continue to separate. And we need to understand that when I, when I think I have my enemies in my hands, I give them back to God. And when, um, when I want a, 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 an unanswerable question answered, I have to realize God has a higher law. Now that's not popular. That's, that, that's, that's not acceptable by anybody right now. But I'm telling you, it will be. As God does his work, it will be. Um, and, and right now we're, we're at the stage where we put words in people's mouths and we assign intent to their heart. I, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't fallen apart at the seams. There's such rage and such anger. But God is bringing something out of 2020 that is going to be unrecognizable. And it is a remnant church that has been purified by the blood of the Lamb and understands what the real message and the real meaning of the church is. Now, the, the, the problem is that if we don't walk in balance, see, I was talking about balance. If we don't walk in balance, it will lead to the exhaustion and exhaustion leads to irritation. Irritation leads to confusion. Confusion leads to criticism. Criticism leads to blurred vision. Blurred vision leads to loss on every level. Okay, so that's why Moses had to learn something about balance. Jethro in his wisdom said, Moses, if you don't get back in balance, if you don't get back in balance, you know, he said, gone are the good old days when nobody listened to you. Now everybody listens to you, at least till they get mad. And they all want to hear you. You've got to find balance. It will help them and it will help you and the purposes of God will go forward. Now, um, let's, let's go to the, the last uh, thing that I want to share. And that is, well, before the Christian life lessons, what is the principle? Now, now the perspective is that burnout is a danger for us all. Sometimes even good motivation unchecked can cause burnout. Um, 
um, the, the, the problem is that if we don't keep balance, we end up being driven and drivenness leads to imbalance, further imbalance. Here's the third thing, and that is the principle. We must learn to be led by the Spirit and not by a burden. And I'll tell you this, only the mature can grasp this. That's why people go from one ministry to another. Um, pastors go from one church to another. And the, the reason is everything we've got a burden for, we think we're responsible for. You know, you can love every child in your neighborhood, but you're not responsible to raise every child in your neighborhood. And that's a, that sounds so cold and callous, but um, there are, one of, the, one of the things that contributed to my frustration in early ministry is I would see something that needed to be done and I interpreted that as God telling me I need to do something. Um, I remember sitting in a classroom um, at lunch, Jeremy was in first grade um, and I went to have lunch with him and I sat there and um, a, a special ed class came in and they were all children, I say special ed, um, special needs, I should say, not special ed, but all of them were deaf. They all had hearing aids. And I sat there and, and I can still cry tonight when I think about it. I watched those little boys and girls eat. And I mean, they were, other than the, the hearing aids, they looked like any other class. But my heart just broke and I just cried and cried and cried. And for years, for years, I tried to figure out a way to have a church ministry for people that had special needs like that. Um, I, I, I went through the frustration of not being able to get a board to back me. I went through the, and not here, I went through the frustration of not getting people to give. Or, and, and it got to the point where I felt guilty un, until I realized, and this, this is going to be hard for some of you to understand, but I had to come to the point where I realized that God never spoke to me to do this. I just had a love for those children. You say, well, then how did you handle it? Well, I've, I've since supported, you know, ministries that did do it. I've, I've, I've prayed for every situation like that. I, every time I go by a school, I, I try to always remember to pray for those students that have special needs. And, and that, I mean, I pass several every day, but I ask the Lord to help all of the students, but especially those with special needs. I've been able to, to fund some, some ministries and some missionaries. So I've, I've had a burden for it, but it took me probably eight or 10, maybe 12 years to realize I didn't have a, a commission from the spirit to do it. That doesn't mean that I wrote them off or that I didn't care. That didn't mean I was saying that's not my problem. But loved ones, especially if you have a tender heart, you may have a propensity to take on things that the Lord never gave you. And it's, it's, it's not because you're evil. It's just the opposite. It's because you're so tender hearted. But what we need to do is say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And how do I do it? And if I can't do this or this, what can I do? Am I making sense? Okay. Um, that's what I mean by being led by the Spirit, not by a burden. Um, there have been a lot of ministries that I have felt a burden for, but I didn't have a call to. I 
visited one time a, um, an international seminary in, in another country. And um, I, I, I was, I, again, I sat there out in the courtyard and I cried and I saw international students come. I said, Lord, this is, this is such an opportunity. This is such a rich, this is such a rich field. And I prayed for it and prayed for it. And I mentioned it to the missionary. And um, a couple of days later, he said, well, I called so-and-so. He said, I put your name in. He said, if you want to come, you've got a job. Uh, now, I found out later I'd also have to raise support. It was as a missionary. It wasn't quite that easy. But, um, I, you know, I thought, you know, the Lord is opening the door. And, and as I prayed, I talked to Ramona and, and uh, um, I talked to my two boys who were old enough to understand. And they said, uh, Dad, we want you to always obey the Lord. He said, but just, we just want you to know we're not going. And... Uh, <laughs> I was pastor here at the time and, and um, they, they said, we, we'll look forward for you coming home for visits, but we're not going. And uh, here's, you know, like a 14 um, year old and a nine year old telling me they're not going. But I, I prayed and um, I, it, it got to the point where I had to say yes or no to, to the process. And the Lord said, what were my last instructions to you where I specifically told you where to go? And I said, it was to come, come to Columbia. And he said, until that changes, stay in Columbia. I haven't told you to go to this city. I haven't told you to go to this country. And you say, well, pastor, how did you do it? Well, we started giving monthly support to them. We've given thousands of dollars through the years. I say we, you, you have to, to uh, that seminary in Europe. And, um, but, but it was liberating to say I can have a burden for something, but not take on the responsibility of something. Um, it should be noted, first of all, that many leadership roles move through seasons. Um, we, we, especially when we're young, we think we're immune to seasons. Um, but um, we, we, there, there are seasons in life. And I want to tell you, I mean, some of you understand, there, there's a difference between working at a job where you barely make ends meet and working at a job where you have an abundance. It's two different seasons. And you have opportunities in one that you don't have in the other, both ways. Um, uh, 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 this was what Paul said in the scripture. He, he said um, to those that were unmarried, he said, if you want to marry... He says, you're fine. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, wishing you were married. He said, it's fine to marry. He says, you've not done wrong if you marry, but if you remain single, I'm paraphrasing it. He says, you will have opportunities as a single person that you won't have as a married person. And then he explained, he said, a married person has to be concerned with the needs of their wife or their husband. See, I've seen too many homes break up where a husband says to a wife, well, I'm, I'm on a mission from God. I've just got to go where the wife says, I don't have time to be a wife to you. I've, I've got a call of God on my life. No, Paul said this, when you are married, you are obligated to each other. Uh, he, I don't mean to be crude, but to the Corinthians, he says, listen, he says, this obligation of husband and wife is so sensitive and so intense. He said, even if you are in a period of fasting, 
He, he said, he said and, and the reason I say this is there's, there's different types of fasting. Fasting is the denial of the flesh, not just the denial of food. You, you can fast TV or you can fast sexual activity. You can fast food. You can fast whatever. Um, you say, yeah, oh, there's, there's nothing to that. Right? If you're a coffee drinker like I am. You, you fast coffee for a couple of days and you'll be convinced you got a brain tumor uh, by the end of the first day. And uh, Paul said, I understand there are, there are times that husband and wife will separate sexually um, for, the, for the sake of seeking the Lord. And this is what he said. But he said, you can't do that for long because it will open the door to temptation if husband and wife aren't husband and wife to each other. And, and Paul was saying, look, there's an obligation that you have to your husband and wife. You not only please the Lord, but you please him. You not only please the Lord, but you please her. But the single person has the ability to look out just for themselves. There are things that I would do without if I had to, but I would, I, I would have to be forced into it to have my wife do without that or my children, or my grandchildren do without. That's another animal. You know, the great martyrs die alone. You know, I mean, that's, a, that's just altogether different. But just as there are seasons in life in the big sense, like married and unmarried, um, there are other seasons like children or no children. And not only children and no children, but one, chil one child or two child, chil childs, ch children. <laughs> Um, you know, and then what happens when the third and the fourth and the fifth child come along? You adjust. And not only the number of children and the existence of children, but an but a, but a infant, a newborn, is altogether different from a toddler. And a toddler is altogether different from an elementary school student. And an elementary school student is altogether different from a junior high school student. Junior high are in their own world. Uh, James Dobson said, I have, an I have advice for every parent of a middle schooler. And uh, he said, get them through it. That was his whole advice. He said, that's all I can tell you. Um, and the parent of a high schooler's different animal. But you know what I found out when your children are grown, there's a whole nother burden you take on. Um, my mom wrote in my Bible, uh, it's such a cherished thing to me. She said, blessed are the time when children are on their mother's toes than constantly on her heart. And so there are seasons. There are things that I can do at this church being here for 26 years that I couldn't do being here for two years. Uh, you, you all have seasons you all have seasons. And in these seasons, there's two temptations. I think there's a typo on mine. Um, the church probably caught it and corrected it. But in, in uh, Roman numeral three, letter A, the last sentence says this. In these seasons, we must not leave too quickly, nor stay too long. Seasons, we've got to find out. There's a time that you might need to step down from teaching that class. Or there's a time you might need to, to take a break from singing in the choir. Glenn wouldn't like me saying that, I know. But um, th there's a time that you might need to say, you know, I'm not going to be on the altar ministry team. I just need a couple of months off. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But if, if we're not balanced, we, don't have, we won't say that. We'll say, you know, nobody else will do it. If I don't do it, it won't get done. And sometimes that's true. Um, it, it, it's, it's a statistic pretty well accepted. I don't know. I think COVID changed everything, but it's pretty well accepted that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And, and my experience, like 45 years of pastoral ministry, that's about right. Um, now, I will say this, this church is the most balanced and the load is the most balanced of every, any church I've ever served. I'm not just saying that to pat you on the back, but you, this is an incredibly involved church and I'm thankful for that. But we need to realize there's a time uh, to say I need to step aside or I need to do something else. Um, the second thing I want you to understand um, is that if you are in pastoral um, or a particular ministry leadership, you've got to understand that unlike any other role, the word and prayer must remain your priority. It must remain your priority. Uh, we learned that from the seven that were chosen to distribute the food. Um, this church has allowed me for all these years to make the Lord, pursuing the Lord to make prayer and the word my priority. Um, I have served churches where I couldn't send an associate to the hospital. Um, you know, we, I call Glenn jokingly, I call him the song man because um, there was a church I pastored one time and somebody was so upset with me because I came in, they'd been in the hospital a couple of days. I came in on like the third day and I said, well, I, uh, he said, well, I hadn't, he said, I hadn't even had a visit. And I said, yeah, I said, Brother Tom came in and he said, oh, he's just the song man. And that, that church was such a heavy, difficult church to serve because the senior pastor was the only one who could do anything. And we grew to about 650 people. That was a lot of people for the senior pastor to be the only one that could do something. Um, in fact, uh, I think it's a very very true thing that a pastor can only really pastor, meaning do everything with about a hundred to 110 people. That's all he can do. And that's, that's about right. That I, I think that's statistically right. Um, so understand if you are in a teaching or preaching ministry, you have got to keep prayer and the word at the top of your priority. Um, I realize that doesn't apply to many folks here, but there are some, and there are some students here that are going into ministry. Um, do not allow the good to take the place of the best. Um, the third thing that we learned from this story with Moses is that work must be delegated, especially as the load increases. The work must be delegated, especially as the load increases. When I was pastoring a church, it was the first church I pastored that had begun to grow. And um, we had grown in a year by uh, prob probably almost 300. And um, um, I invited my pastoral theology professor in to preach. And um, he, he, was, he was just probably my favorite professor, such an outstanding man of God. His name was W.C. Richardson. And um, I, he said, well, how are things going? And in fact, he preached here, I think the first year I was here, but uh, he's in heaven now. I said, he said, how's it going? I said, 
Brother Richardson, I said, it's going great. I said, um, I remember everything you taught me. I, I said, but if you'll allow me, I said, I'm, I'm struggling with this and this and this. Uh, I can't, I can't make every visit. I can't handle every counseling appointment. At, at that point, I was averaging 16 counseling appointments a week. 16. Uh, that's two full days. And when you take time for lunch, you're talking about two and a half days of the week where it's counseling. I, I said, on top of that, uh, I have committee meetings every night. The people won't let anybody else see them at the hospital. So my day usually starts about 4.30 and ends about 10. And I said, I'm, I'm exhausted. And he said, what do you think you ought to do? I said, I'm doing everything I was taught and it's not working. And I said, I know that's not your fault. I said, I'm doing something wrong. And um, this is what he said. He said, no, it is my fault. And I said, no, sir, it's my fault. He said, it is not your fault. Let me tell you why it's my fault. He said, because when you were at Southeastern, we taught a model that was already on its way out. The average church in America was about 80 people. And he said, the model I taught you works with 80 to 100 people. If you're really young and energetic, you can handle 150. He said, and you're, you're at a, um, around 300 and, um, or, or more. And uh, he said, what I don't think I understood, he said, I didn't understand that the church was going to, to change. He said, do you remember what I said about church size? And I smiled. I did. He, he said this. He said, churches of two or three hundred are an aberration. He said, churches can't function if they've got that many people. And in those days, a mega church was considered to be four or five hundred. And, and, and we all know we, you'll probably pass three or four churches larger than that on your way home tonight. And he said this, he said, um, the, the greater the load, the more delegation. He said, do you remember my lecture about delegation? And I thought a moment and I said, no, sir, I don't think so. He said, that's because I never gave one. <laughs> he said, because the model that has served the church for 200 years in America is the pastor does everything. But he says, we're, we're changing. He said, I don't know when this is going to happen, but he said, we're about to enter a time when pastoral ministry will be different. And unless you learn to delegate, you won't survive or you'll spend all of your time with a hundred people. And I, I'm not saying that, certainly not to criticize that. That man was a phenomenal professor and he, he did what he was commissioned to do. Um, but what I am telling you is that if that's true for pastors, it's true for every other job. Everybody has their limit to what they can do. And when you start pressing into the limit of what you can do, you need to start delegating. It, 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 you need to bring in help. There's a principle that I found to be true in churches all through these years. When a church reaches 80% of their capacity you have to build or the church will shrink back down to 60 or 70% of its capacity. Every time, every time when you're at 
that's when you build. And you say, well, why would I build? We still got some empty seats. But those last 20% of seats aren't going to be filled because people are uncomfortable sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers. It's the 80% rule. And it's a good rule not only for church growth, but it's a good rule for your life. I don't know how you measure it, but when something in your life reaches its 80% capacity, you need to start looking at something. Now, I don't mean like take on a second wife, or, but, you, but you need to adjust. You need to adjust. Um, new, but here's the good thing about when you make these adjustments. It happened when they appointed the seven, and it happened when Moses appointed the leaders over different groups. In both situations, when the minister was willing to delegate, it opened up brand new ministry opportunities. So God tells us to maintain balance. God tells us to step back sometimes, not to take things away from us, but to actually open more doors for us. And the, the need of the people will be met. Oh, it's time for to quit. Let me give you the life lessons real quickly. I'll try to do this in five minutes or less. Um, number one, thank God for all the Jethro's in your life. I mean, we've got some great ones, Jethro Gibbs, Jethro Bodine, and, and the priest Jethro. Um, be thankful for very wise people. You know, some of the wisest people in your life may not even have a job title that comes anywhere near yours. They may not have the experiences or the victories, anything like you've got. But be on the lookout for Jethro's that can come in and out with a word of wisdom when it's needed. And it may come from unexpected sources. Um, number two, family ought to be a special source of edification. This is a tough thing. Jesus said no prophet is without honor except in his own country, his own city, his own people. And there's something about whatever you do your family doesn't understand the dynamic. I mean, a lot of your family, not all of your family, of course. Um, uh, and it, I used to think, well, maybe, you know, is it because they see something in me that's not true or, you know, am I a hypocrite or something? But when that, whenever I realized that Jesus had this problem, I, I figured out it's, it might not be my fault and it might not be your fault. You know, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. I mean, how do you live with Jesus? How do you grow up in a home with a big brother like Jesus and not believe in him? There's just some dynamic that we don't understand. But family, and, and, and I, I personally think it's a result of the fall. But our family, while at one, at one moment, it ought to be the greatest source of edification to us. We're in a system where that's the place where it's hardest to earn honor and respect. It's hard to define unless to say there's some spiritual dynamic at work. But family ought to be a special source of edification. Uh, and, and I encourage you as husband and wife to work on that. See, we, we are often short and irritable with those that we're closest to because we know they love us and we know we can get away with it. That's subconscious. We never fuss with our spouse because, oh, I know I can get away with it. We, we just let our guard down and, 
and our hurts flow out and our complaints flow out. And sometimes it has nothing to do with them, but we just feel like, well, you'll clean my vomit. But let's work on being the edifier. You know, husband, your wife needs and wants to feel loved and protected. And wife, your husband wants to feel honored and respected. And I know you might not believe this, but generally speaking, the need to be honored and respected is more important to a man than sex. Now, he doesn't believe that for about 20 years. And you may never believe it. But when you, I, I found it to be true through all of these years. When you get right down to it, um, I think the number one need, when all things being equal, the number one need in a man's life is to feel like my wife and family respect me and honor me. That'll trump everything else. The wife, even if she's got a strong personality and is the de facto leader of the home, she wants to know she's protected. She wants to know that she's loved and cared for. Well, I better go on. You're getting tense. Um, number three, here's a tough one. Always keep your victories open for examination. Moses, Papa, let me tell you what God has done for us. I saw, I saw Pharaoh's carcass on the beach in the sun starting to rot. God did that for us. And he went on and on and on. And then after all of this, Jethro says, that's wonderful. Now, let me ask you about something. Always understand that your victories should be open for examination. Because when we have victories spiritually or financially or whatever, we have a tendency to get, you know, a little emotionally drunk. So don't be surprised if your victories need to be open to examination. And here's the last thing. Because there are seasons in life, fine-tuning from time to time is essential. You see, I think you can draw broad strokes of the brush. You can say uh, a man in his 20s is this, uh, or woman. Uh, a person in their 30s is this. A person in their 40s are this. A person in their 50s are this person in their 60s or this. I mean, it, it, we're linear people and we like to break it into categories, but somebody's 20s experience may, may be in their early 20s and their 30s experience may start at 25. You, you just don't know. You know, we, we talk about midlife crisis. Um, midlife, I'm not sure exactly where that phrase came from, uh, I, I know it came from the, the idea of a woman's body changing, but we have all kinds of crises in our life from time to time. And we need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive to that. Um, I knew when I had been here, I, I was probably in my third year, God sent a Jethro to sit in my office over there. And um, we were celebrating what God was doing. And he said, can I talk to you? And he was, it was Terry Wozden. He's my closest friend. I said, of course you can talk to me. And he said, I, I want to tell you this, 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 and this. He named four things. He said, I see this. You don't see this. If, if you don't let God do what he wants to do in these four areas, you'll never be able to lead this church. And um, I, I thought, My first thought was, 
I have, my church is four times the size of yours. How would you know? I'm thankful I didn't say that. That would have been so dishonoring. But the second thing I thought was, I don't agree with any of these four points. And he said, and I know you may not agree with these four points, but he said, that just goes to show how important it is that you understand them because I don't think you see them. And I said, I don't see them, but you know what? I thought about it. I listened to him. Next morning I woke up realizing these are four things about me. It wasn't church programs. These are four things about me that worked fine in a church of a hundred, but they're not going to work if we're going to grow. So understand that fine tuning from time to time is essential. Um, let me give you three, three quick ones to take with you uh, under number four. Determine what is essential and what is elective. You know, I tell our pastors and I tell our, our uh, SESL students, when you start out in ministry, you don't have the right, you don't have the resources to choose what you will do and not do. When you start out, you got to do everything. But as you get older you'll, and, and more experienced and the church changes, you'll be able to decide what I have to do and what I can give someone else to do. And it's true in every area of life. Determine what is essential and what is elective. Um, uh, number two, don't be afraid to turn down invitations. Every promotion is not necessarily from the Lord. I tell you what I've seen at this church over and over again. Somebody be offered a job with a big promotion and a big increase in pay. And they will turn it down saying, I feel like God wants me to stay here. Now that's, I'm not excited about that because they're staying. I mean, I am excited about that. But I'm excited about that because they understand that you don't follow money. When, you know, that, that's not what we pursue. If God gives it to you, that's great, but not every promotion of the Lord. Don't accept every invitation to meet needs. You can't do everything. Um, somebody came to me one time and they're not in this church anymore. I wouldn't say it if they were, because I wouldn't want to embarrass them. I mean, I wouldn't use their name anyway, but we had received a special offering for something and they met me out in the hallway and said, you know, I'm just, this is the fourth special offering we've had in the last three months. And, and that, that was a lot. That's too many special offerings really until you get to the holidays and you got all kinds of things. But um, I said, yeah, I said, we, we, we didn't plan well. And I, I said, we'll do a better job of planning. And um, I, I thought that would solve it. He said, you don't understand. I've given till I can't give anymore. And I said, then don't give. I, I said, it's no problem. I, I, you, probably very few people in this church can give to everything that we give to. Just follow the Lord. And he, he did his best to just drag this argument on and on. But I just said, just don't give. You can't meet every need. You can't fill every ministry opportunity. Um, I, I, you know, every, from time to time I'll offer someone a position or I'll offer somebody a ministry job and it, it, it ends up not being the will of God or they don't feel it's the will of God or just things don't come together and don't work. And so many times they feel so bad about saying, no, I can't teach that class or can't. 
But loved ones, I understand not everything can be met by you. So don't feel like you have to do everything that comes your way and don't accept every invitation to an argument. Okay. Um, and pay attention to both natural and supernatural laws. In other words, there are some things that are common sense. Um, I, I don't think you need to pray about letting go of something if you're getting three and a half hours sleep a night. You, you, I mean, some people are wired, they can live that way. Um, but I'm saying a lot of times we wonder, well, is this the will of God or is it? And you, it, it, physically you can't do it. Emotionally you can't do it. Don't be afraid to let it go. And then also understand this, there will be times that something's beyond your ability and God will tell you to do it and he will impart grace to you to do it. But the key is being led by the spirit. Okay, I gotta stop. Uh, I'm just getting warmed up. I'm sorry I went over. My apologies. Um, I guarantee you, I give you my word, I will not go over next week because we're having a praise service next week. But, uh, but I can promise you I won't go over. Father, we pray your blessing on this beautiful family tonight. And, and I sincerely apologize for, for going over. Um, didn't do a good job watching the clock. But as they go, and I know that they're probably in a rush to get their kids, but as they go, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord, or Savior, Lord and Savior, if there's anyone listening online that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to remind them tonight that it's a very simple process to receive a very profound gift. The scripture tells us that if we can admit that we are sinners... If we can believe that Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross. And if we can confess him, claim him, embrace him as the Lord of our lives, we can have eternal life right now. I pray for anyone that's here that they will pray that prayer as we are dismissing right now and come to one of the pastors or, or church leaders afterwards and say, I've made my decision for Jesus. If they are away from us and watching online and they want to make that commitment, I pray that they would call the church, go on our website, make contact with us, and we will be in touch with you to give you materials to help you follow the Lord Jesus. Now, Father, I want to ask one more thing, um, and it is this. It's for those who are suffering symptoms of burnout, They've gotten imbalanced. Maybe it's because of this crazy year that we've had, 2020, where nothing seems to be working right or nothing seems to be connected right. Father, some of us, we just may be worn out from the exhaustion of trying to get through this. Lord, if we're burnout, if we're imbalanced, for those of us that are just tired, I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to settle upon them, give them grace, give them help, and let them know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You promised that we will find rest for our souls. We claim that promise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you and God bless you for being here.